My name is Stephanie. I'm part of the, the team here at Redeemer. It is such a privilege to serve you this morning and to share what's on my heart. Um, as we were worshiping, I felt the whisper of the Father and he said, slow down. Take your time this morning because what we're talking about is really important and really significant. So I've prepared quite a bit and we may or may not get through it and that's okay. Um, so this is the fake news series that we started, Ryan started two weeks ago. Um, and I was thinking about the prep that he did and the setup that he did. And when our kids were small, if they ever said, I hate broccoli, Mads, you know, Amy, whatever, I would have this thing that I said to them. And I said it so many times over the years. I would say, in our family, we don't use that word. What you meant to say was, I find it hard to love. And before any of you come to me afterwards, I'm sure there's years of therapy for them all in thinking that through, and that's okay. But I was thinking about the iconic image that Ryan, uh, that Ryan started with of Trump, because he is the one that uh, represents fake news. And I was going to put him up, and then I realized, if I was really honest, I find it hard to love the Donald. So stay with me. <laughs> uh, you know what fake news is all about. Ryan spoke so well two weeks ago on the lies that we have believed about God. The focus of this series has got to be to call us back into the nature and the character of a loving God, a father, a mother, who invites us through Jesus to be part of the story, the story of what God is doing in the world. God is calling us as humanity, his children, into a relationship that will enable us to live fully whole and fully human. In this series, we want to address some of the lies that we've believed about God, and today I want to speak to some of the lies that we have believed about ourselves. Matt will continue next week. Ryan spoke of the lens that we can have that will impact our understanding of our relationship to God perhaps the absent dad, perhaps the benevolent granda, and how these lenses do not allow for the healing of our souls. So as long as you look to God through the lens of your mess, you will never walk whole. You will never walk in healing. You will never walk as a child of God. And that is what is at the heart of this series. That is what we long for in our own lives and in the lives of this community. I want to consider three lies this morning, we'll see how we go, that I would suggest negatively impact not only our own lives, but all the lives of those around us and prevent us from living free as the beloved. Let's together begin to imagine what life might actually look like in all its fullness, what that might actually mean in the day to day for us as Jesus followers here in Redeemer. If we did the work required to free ourselves of living under these lies, what would our lives look like? I want to begin with this quote from a guy who made world-class violins and he talked about God as the creator and as the heart of an artist. Scripture shows me that God has the art, heart of an artist, not a grim construction planner. If the world were the work of a cosmic engineer, he would be in a constant state of discontentedness. We would all be suffering from the constant nagging of a dogged designer whose plans just never worked out like he intended or expected. 
Reality could never live up to his spotless construction plans. But a true creator knows he not only has to shape, but also endorse and allow. Wisdom allows things to grow and unfold. You are invited into relationship with an artist. He is not a designer. As Ryan spoke of last week, he doesn't have it all mapped out. He is inviting you into relationship with a designer and he will allow it all to unfold. Lie number one that I want to hit is, I am in control, I must be in control. <laughs> hmm. It's a big one. It's a very big one. And those of us in the room who think we don't struggle with it, or that we don't live slightly believing it, I would suggest you have some consideration to have done. I would suggest you ask the Spirit to enlighten you this morning. I must be in control. Ryan last week challenged the lie God is in control. And now I want to look at this. Shane Claiborne in a beautiful book, The Irresistible uh, Revolution, says this quote, I've met a lot of Christians who say, if people knew about all my struggles and my weaknesses, they'd never want to be a Christian. I think just the opposite is true. If people knew that idiots like us, in all our brokenness and our vulnerability, can be Christians, they'd know that each of them could give it a shot too. Why do we get into control? Why do we want to live in control? When Jesus taught us his way of life, the Sermon on the Mount, I would like to summarize it like this. We are spiritually desperate for God. We weep over our condition. We allow ourselves to be broken. We are hungry for God. We receive forgiveness and we live merciful lives. We are completely sincere and authentic. We strive always to bring peace and we expect nothing in return except persecution. That is the mandate for a life well lived as a Jesus follower, and there's no place in that life for us to exert control over ourselves and over others. That is the life of a servant who lives in absolute trust of a good God, who is secure in that love and care, knowing we will never be alone no matter what life throws at us. We all know that our lives can change irrevocably in an instant. And when we're in the storm, facing what we thought we would never have to face, it is only in those moments that we fully appreciate the relentless pursuit of a God who always longs to cover us and keep us in the shadow of his wings. When we face the harsh reality that we cannot control our lives, that often becomes the point where we want to believe in a God who's in control. Because we think to ourselves, well, if I'm not in control, I need to know he is. And when Ryan reminded us two weeks ago that God is not in control, perhaps in the way we think, then our default or our risk could be that we decide at a very deep level that we must control the world. I would suggest that humanity as a race invented the idea of control to satisfy our need to dominate and to maintain the myth of certainty. When we try and control our life and the world around us, it's our desperate attempt to keep the world safe and to try and ensure whatever we fear the most will never happen. 
The question then that requires an answer this morning is, why do we try and live as if we're in control? How did we imbibe this lie, I must be in control? Often this pattern, in my view, begins in childhood. Think hard about the lessons that you learned when you were a child. They might not have been explicitly taught, but you will have imbibed them. Maybe you had an absent dad, and your life is now the constant search for perfection. Maybe you had parents who fought, and you will avoid conflict at all costs. Maybe you learned to eat in response to your emotional pain. Maybe you learned to punish yourself in response to your emotional pain. If you suffered any kind of abuse, abuse, you will have suffered a breakdown in all of the boundaries that we were meant to be designed with. And that has long lasting implications. And none of this I say lightly. As we grow and develop, we develop strategies in our mind that will address these issues. We want to cover up all our mess by control and by performance. We develop a psyche that tries to protect us from the harsh reality of our hearts. What does faith in God ask of us then in relation to this lie? In Genesis 1, God's, God's plan for the world was to bring order out of chaos. And that is still the plan. It is still the plan for your life, your heart, your mind. Order out of chaos. The Jewish teaching, which I think is beautiful, is to, find, is to go back intentionally to your childhood. Find out what you lost. Work it out. Understand it. And then try and regain it. And you can only regain it in relationship. So the Jewish teaching was always to return to the beginning and then to start again and to start again as the child of God and as a young person who will then have all their needs met and will walk free and whole. As you know, I work as a therapist and there's not a week of my life that I don't quote the verse, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. Clinically, as a therapist, the evidence is overwhelming for the, the freedom that is found when people start to speak the truth. Speak the truth about what they lost. Speak the truth about what happened them. And in doing that, they become free. If we think of Freud, all the people, that, those of us who work in this world have, have studied, Freud, Abler, Carl Rogers, they all offered secular versions of this biblical truth. The truth will set you free. Do the hard work required to address these losses and the trauma of the past. And your need to control will leave you. I've seen it in my own life and I've seen it in the lives of others again and again. Jordan MacDonald, who was a mentor of C.S. Lewis, he once said, it should be up behind me, if you trust the goodness of God, you will run to him with your arms wide open and ask him to burn off anything that keeps you from being fully open and fully human. Redeemer, we are family. We are called to be family. Let's do this work together and let's bin this lie, which I think is toxic, not only in your own life, but in the lives of all those around you. I must be in control. Let's...
wave it goodbye. Lie number two. Lie number two, my life is my own. Hmm. Lie number two, my life is my own. I want just to read these verses over us from the New English Translation. Who am I and who are my people that we should be in a position to contribute this much? Indeed, everything comes from you and we have simply given back to you what is yours. John 3:27, and John replied, no one can receive anything unless it has been given to him from heaven. In Proverbs, I, I remember this verse from my childhood and it was used probably for all sorts of kind of justifications of things perhaps in Sunday school and all the rest of it. Train up a child in the way they should go and when they are old, they will not depart from it. And what I've learned of late is that the Hebrew word that is used for training actually means train up a child in their way. Not in the way, in their way. The child's unique way. And I want you to think about that. You were designed and only you can live the life that you were designed for. And you are to be trained in your way. There's no formula, there's no rules, there's no things you must do. You are to be designed, you are to join the creator and co-create the amazing story that he invites you to be a part of. And your story will not look like yours, will not look like yours, won't look like mine, and vice versa. That is really important. A, good, a great family is one where they're all completely different and completely bonkers in their own way. I don't know if any of you, maybe it's just we of that family, but that's what's great about us. We're not the same and we rub off each other and we debate with each other and we dramatize each other and we get into all sorts of things, but that is what family does. Each one of you is a unique, beautiful creation and you are on your own journey that you will be trained for and it is only yours. I always like to think of our lives as a, a story and that we're being written perhaps a chapter at a time and the story of your life will probably only make sense when you look back. So if we accept that we are each a unique creation of a loving creator and that our lives are a gift, then let's consider this idea that my life is my own. I want us to reflect on the story of Jonah and from it tease out some ideas that this lie has, has perhaps impacted Jonah. My life is my own. So I'm gonna read this passage. It's from Jonah, spelt wrong, sorry, uh, chapter one. The Lord said to Jonah, son of Amittai, go immediately to Nineveh, that large capital city, and announce judgment against its people because their, their wickedness has come to my attention. So God was inviting Jonah into the story to go and bring his word of new life to the people of Nineveh. And Jonah decided, actually, I know better. <laughs> I am not going to pay attention to what you're asking me to do. I'm going to do my own thing. Jonah immediately headed off to Tarshish to escape from the commission of the Lord. He traveled to Joppa and found a merchant ship heading to Tarshish. So apparently, if you look at the map, he had to go south 
and sort of round the corner a bit to Joppa, he got on the ship and he headed to Tarshish. God had asked him to go here and he headed here. Because Jonah was pretty clear, my life is my own, I'm doing it. The Lord hurled a powerful, so he paid his fare and he went aboard it to go with them to Tarshish, far away from the Lord. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind on the sea, such a violent tempest arose on the sea that the ship threatened to break up. The sailors were so afraid that they each cried to their own God and they flung the cargo overboard to make the ship lighter. This was a polytheistic culture. Everyone had their own God. So every sailor saw the storm and got down on their knees and prayed to their God in the hope that the storm would end. The sailors were so afraid that they each cried out. Jonah, meanwhile, he went down into the hold below deck. He lay down and he was fast asleep. I'm all good, I'm doing my thing. Whatever's happening up there is not my concern. The ship's captain approached him and said, what are you doing asleep? Get up and cry to your God. We've tried all of our gods, you try yours. Get up, cry out to your God. Perhaps your God might take notice of us so that we might not die. The sailors said to one another, come on, let's cast lots to find out whose fault it is that this disaster has overtaken us. So they cast lots and Jonah was singled out. That's what happened in those days when people were trying to work out what was happening. They, they fired dies and it came up as Jonah. Oh, um, okay, I might need a technical person. I don't know how to get to my next slide. Oh, no, I do. Sorry. They said to him, tell them whose fault is this disaster has overtaken us. What's your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? And who are your people? He said to them, I am a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Hearing this, the men became even more afraid and said to him, what have you done? The men said this because they knew that he was trying to escape from the Lord because he told them. So they're standing there thinking, you worship the one that you believe is in charge of the earth and the sea, and you're trying to escape him on our boat. Really? <laughs> you're going to take us all out because you're disobeying your God? Jo Jonah, because the, Lord, the storm was growing worse and worse, they said to him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm for us? He said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea to make the sea quiet and down because I know it's my fault you're in this severe storm. Suddenly, Jonah woke up to this idea. I have been believing my life is my own when actually how I live and how I behave impacts those around me and we are all in this story together. What does he say? He said, pick me up and throw me over. Instead, they tried to row back to land, but they were not able to do so because the storm kept getting worse. So they cried out to the Lord, don't let us die on account of this man. Don't hold us guilty of shedding innocent blood. After all, you, Lord, have done just as you pleased. So they picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped raging. The men feared the Lord greatly and earnestly vowed to offer lavish sacrifices to the God, to their God. I want us to think about this story. The story of Jonah alerts us to the absolute lie that we may fall under. My life is my own. If we live under that idea, 
we miss the truth that God, through Jesus, invites us into relationship where we are part of what he's doing in the world. Our lives impact those around us and our spiritual apathy may mean that not only do we miss out what God is doing in our lives, but that we're actually gonna bring down those around us. Our apathy, our lack of engagement will also impact others. Eugene Peterson describes a life of faith as long obedience in the same direction. The challenge is to stay in such constant conversation and communication with the Father that we are fully alive to all that he is doing in our lives and in the lives around us. Jonah's name means dove and son of faithfulness, which is a really sort of interesting name he has. God had invited him to be part of the restoration of Nineveh, to be part of God's grace to a city that was in ruin, and what did he do? He went as far as he could in the opposite direction. I love that image of Jonah. He goes deeper. First of all, he goes south, then he goes into the bottom of the boat, then he goes into the bottom of the sea. He literally, he sees what's happening. He sees what's happening to all around him and he sacrifices himself and he gives up. And what happens when he's at the point of giving up, of saying, I've got it wrong, I messed up, I'm causing rack and ruin. A massive wheel is sent as God's vehicle for grace and swallows him up. And he sits for three days in the base of that wheel, can't imagine what that was like, and thinks, and he is restored. He is not only restored, God's plan continues. He is thrown up on the city of Nineveh and you know the rest of the story. And I want to say to you this morning, those of you who are sitting in a deep, dark place in a mess, perhaps a mess of your own doing, perhaps not, it is only when you sit in that place and feel it and name it and understand it and throw your arms up that the grace and the mercy and the kindness of God is there for you. Perhaps all you need to do is just turn your head a little and see it for what it is. Jonah's reached the end of himself and that's where grace comes. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus described himself as the sign of Jonah. Three days of death and then new life. It is only when Jesus gave himself up and endured the cross for us that the new life began. What are we missing out on that God is inviting us to partner with? What are you missing out on that God is currently inviting you to partner with? Our life is definitely not our own. We are part of the story of God that has been written in this generation and in this city. What part is yours? I'm always in awe of William Wilberforce, that MP, who devoted his life to seeing the way of Jesus get embedded in society. He campaigned steadfastly for 45 years. 45 years. And three days before he died, slavery was abolished in Parliament. I often like to think, I wonder what it was like when he hit year 20. Did he feel like giving up? Did he feel like saying, I've, I've devoted 20 years to this, I'm done? He devoted 45 years of obedience in the same direction, and he changed the world forever. 
You may be sitting this morning thinking, can I keep going with what I feel I'm called to, be, to do or to be? Can I keep staying? And the call is steadfastness. The call is to cling on by whatever it takes because his ways will come and he will be glorified. I think it's supremely beautiful that it happened three days before he died. It could have happened two days after he died. But there's something so graceful and kind in the heart of the father that allowed that 45 years to happen three days before he died. And he must have died such a peaceful, happy man. But boy, what were those 45 years like? And so, Redeemer, whatever is on your heart, don't give up. Don't give up. Stay steadfast. Stay true. Stay in the story that God has invited you into. Ben this idea that my life is my own. Think of how you live and how it will impact others. My final lie that I thought we wanted to talk about this morning is perhaps the most toxic and perhaps the most difficult to change. It's just the way I am. It's just the way I am. When God spoke to Moses, the only time that we heard God describe himself, he spoke to him at the burning bush and he called himself Yahweh. And he named himself, the verb he used in Hebrew is translated as I am who I am becoming. I am who I am becoming. In other words, I will become what you need, which is the savior of Israel. So if God himself described himself as a verb, a process, a journey, why then would we not want to join in that journey of becoming more like Jesus, more like the Father? Why would we choose to stay as we are in our brokenness and our mess? The Eastern Orthodox view of sin was as a disease of the soul. Someone said to me recently, we don't talk enough about sin and and possibly we don't. I think it's time to return to that Eastern Orthodox view of sin as a disease of the soul. And when you have a disease, you need a doctor. The West have taken the idea of sin and made it into a legal thing that you require a judge and a lawyer. But perhaps the invitation is to return to the idea that anything that draws me away from the heart of pure love, which is the Father, that is sin. And I need a doctor. The doctor has provided for whatever is your mess and your brokenness. The doctor is here. The doctor is here. We've become known, we've become known by our identity. I, I work, as you know, with teenagers and being gray haired and in my 50s, I use that all the time with them. And I say, look, it's 40 years since I was doing what you're doing. No idea what it's like to be a teenager. Tell me about your life. And we end up having great conversations because they seem to be able to tell me things that maybe they wouldn't tell someone of their own age or someone in their 30s. And I had a lovely client last year and I saw him every week on a Tuesday at three. And it was the same time every week because I wanted to be a constant in his life because he didn't have many constants. And I used my what I consider my elderliness, my maturity, uh, to my advantage with Nathan. And he used to walk up to the 
reception, and in his thick Newry accent, he'd say, what do you call that old doll I see here? And Sinead, my receptionist, would say, Stephanie? And he'd go, tell her I'm here. And I became known to Nathan by my physical appearance and my identity. I became his old doll. And we developed such fondness for each other, even though he called me an old doll and refused to call me anything else. So I became known to Nathan as what I physically was. Your name is your identity and you'll become known for who you are. What if you were really honest with yourself today? If you were to look at your heart this morning and you said, if I was to actually call myself what I should be today, what would it be? Would it be anxiety? Would it be anger? Worry? Loneliness? Bitterness? Rage? Control? What would you actually call yourself today? Because that is who you will become known as. And that is not the call of Jesus in our lives. I want to consider briefly two women in the Bible and how their names reflected their context and their identity. I want to talk, first of all, about the widow of Zarephath, who's talked about in 1 Kings. And I've always got curious, why was she called? She, she must have had a name, but we know her as a widow. And what I've understood through biblical research is that when widow is used, it's to pay, you've got to pay attention to the lesson. Because a widow in this culture was the lowest of the low. They had no rights. They had no man to pay for them or look after them. And if they had no sons, they were gone. They had nothing. And so this widow, there's been a, there's been a, Zarephath the city means ambush of the mouth. Why was her name not mentioned? I would imagine it was because her identity as a widow was a significant learning. I'm not going to read all the verses. You can read it for yourselves. But what was happening was she was a victim of a widespread famine. The place was starving and people were dying. And because of her personal situation and her social context, she had nothing. And her, her son, who would have been her hope for the future, was a kid, and so he could offer her nothing. And so they were sitting knowing that they had just enough flour and oil for one more cake. They were going to eat it, and they were going to lie down and die. Because that's all they had. They were outside of society. She, was, she had nothing. And along comes Elijah and says, give me your oil and give me your flour. I cannot imagine what was in her to be able to do that, but she did because she knew it was God and she trusted the prophet. And day after day after day, when she went back to the oil and the flour, there was enough. There was enough. In a society where kinship gives you identity, meaning, and protection, this woman had nothing. She was as low as she could go. She listens to the prophet and she provided just enough for every day, never more, never more. And it takes me that, to that beautiful verse, his mercies are new every morning. 
That is a verse that became my mantra a number of years ago when I was ill because the thought of tomorrow was too much. I just needed to get through today. And that verse became what kept me going. And for those of you this morning who are facing difficult, difficult circumstances, cling to that truth. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Don't go to tomorrow. Simply live today in the truth of that promise. I want to talk briefly about Naomi. Um, yeah. Naomi, the, the name means pleasant. And she also was another widow. She had not only lost her husband, she'd lost her sons-in-law, sons, and she was left with two daughters-in-law. She had nothing. She'd fled the land trying to find food. And when she came back home, she told her people, do not call me Naomi because the Lord has dealt with me. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. Is that your name this morning? Bitter. She chose bitter because she was devastated and blindsided by her life and she wanted her identity to reflect that. And many of us, what has happened to us in life, that's what becomes our identity and that's what we reflect. Ruth became the living, breathing embodiment of God's faithful covenant and love for her and she was restored. She was restored. How we live and behave either becomes an authentic way of expressing and communicating to ourselves and to the world our belovedness, our good creator, or it's an effort to cover up the shame that we feel about ourselves. Redeemer family, what name and identity do you wish to be known as? How do you hope those around you will describe you? Does your life act as an invitation to others to come to God? Are you love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness? faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, for of such there is no law. This is our calling and this is our identity. Let's bin this lie. This does not serve us well. This will not serve us well. Let's bin this lie and do the hard work of becoming more like Jesus. This, I believe, is the call on our lives. This is the call to holiness. So as we come into land, we land at the table of grace. We land at this table that reminds us of our relationship with God, only made possible through Jesus enduring the cross. And if we care for our souls and want to walk free of these lies, remember there's no formula for the journey. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. God alone will know the journey that you need to go on to allow you to craft you to wholeness and holiness. His kindness will always invite you into the healing of your soul. I heard someone describe beautifully the other day, do the hard work of walking into wholeness and walking into wholeness and do it in relationship with God who has skin. Find the person in your life, the people in your lives who will be God with skin on, who help you, who walk with you, who pray with you, and who call you on. That is what we do as family. That, I believe, is the call to us this morning. Think about the lies. Think, have you imbibed any of them? 
and then make your decisions of what you're going to do moving forward. Can I invite the band to come? Just as we come, I want to end really with that beautiful quote. Jordan MacDonald was C.S. Lewis's mentor. Let's stand. If you trust the goodness of God, you will run to him. You will run to him with your arms wide open and you'll ask him to burn off anything that keeps you from being fully open and fully human. And my favorite story in the Bible is the story of the prodigal. Because when he, he returns home, he doesn't, come, he, hasn't, he doesn't have to get there to meet his father because when he starts on the journey, the father has his skirts lifted up and he's running towards him. He is running towards him. And so whatever hard work or simple work is ahead of you, know that there is a father, a mother, who is waiting to do it with you. Know that when you come to this table, this is where your relationship with the Father through Jesus begins. And we need to remind ourselves that that's what we're called to. Allow us as a church and as a community to walk with you, whatever your walk is. Don't walk it alone. We were not meant to do this alone. So as we come to the table to celebrate and be thankful... If you want to have prayer, if you want anyone to stand with you, please come forward. We will have people available to walk with you. But know that as you turn towards the Father, he is already running towards you. And your name will change.